listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Pastor Andy Squires. Come on in. We'll get started. If you're in the lobby, you'll be more blessed if you're in here. Make your way in and we'll get started. Praise the Lord. I'll just let you guys know I am I'm a basic mess today. Um, That worship just killed me. So I'm thankful for the worship team. Those guys are amazing. But the Lord's even more amazing. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that drink of living water. Guys, um, today we're, we're in the book of Mark, and we've got two more chapters in the book of Mark. And today I'm on chapter 15, and Scott Volk will be preaching on chapter 16 next week. Um, and chapter 15 is kind of a, it's kind of a big deal of a chapter. It's the crucifixion scene in the gospel of Mark. And in, in Mark 14, what we saw was the, 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 the plot to kill Jesus had accelerated. We had the Last Supper. We had the prediction of, of Peter's denial. We had the night of prayer in Gethsemane. We had Judas's betrayal. We had Jesus's arrest. Jesus facing the Sanhedrin. And there's all of this false witness coming against him. And he just stood there answering nothing. And then finally, at the end of chapter 14, we see Peter's denial of Jesus and in typical scriptural fashion, it's not very polite about the situation. It says that Peter cursed and he swore and then he wept. It was a very bad moment in Peter's life. It was a very bad moment in a lot of people's lives. And um, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to start by opening up Mark 15 and we're going to read beginning at verse 16. And we've got it on the screen there, but if you have your Bible, you're welcome to open up and follow along. We're going to go to verse 37. Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed Jesus with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, And they put it on his head and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. 
With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others himself. He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. So I know most of you have heard this story before, but we should be careful when considering it again, that we don't already know what it's saying. You've heard me say this before. Oftentimes we bypass scripture because we think we already know what it's saying and we already know what it means. And usually that's because we have a just a cursory knowledge of some Bible story that we heard somewhere. But thankfully, this story, this reality has power attached to it that actually can change the world. It has changed the world and not just the world only, but it can change your very life. And one of the things that has been being challenged in me is the Holy Spirit of late has been dealing with me on the issue of mercy. I want to talk to you this morning about the concept or the virtue of mercy. When we hear that word, oftentimes we think of this far away, abstract, grandiose kind of thing. But it's, there's a, there's a very real and painful and practical and costly side to this word. And so we're going to take a look at it this morning. And so for the past month or so, I've been having this conversation with the Holy Spirit about mercy. Mercy is a word that I think I understand, but I really don't. See, you can have a mental understanding of something, but not have the reality of it working in your life. Sometimes the mental understanding that you have about something is the very thing that keeps you from the reality of it having its way in your life. Because you think you understand something, you can go no further in receiving the reality of it. If you were to ask me two months ago, point blank, Andy, do you know what mercy is? I would say yes. Are you walking in it? I would say absolutely. And then I just began to notice 
myself in the current environment that we live in, in this, in the, in this world where everybody seems to be polarized away from each other for one reason or another. Have you noticed we lived in a, we live in a very categorized society now. We are assessing people and judging people according to their political party, according to what they vote like, what they say they believe in, what they look like. We just live in a moment where if you're driving down the freeway, you can figure out how much of a reality that mercy is working in your life. So the Lord's been dealing with me on this. I want to take you to another scripture, but it's not found in the book of Mark. It's found in the book of Luke. It's in chapter six. This is in verse 32. This just kills me, man. This is Jesus. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But you, but you love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and he is kind to the evil. Be merciful for even your father is merciful. I would say this right here is the best definition of what holiness is. Oftentimes we think that holiness is abstaining from sin. We think that holiness is, is abstaining from something that somebody somewhere has said was sinful. And I'm telling you, that is not how Jesus defined it. He says, if you want to look like your father, be merciful as your father is merciful. If you want to look like God himself, love people that are hard to love. Because everybody, everybody loves their family or those that love them back, or loves those that can do something for them. What sets you apart as children of God is this thing that I'm telling you right here. It's to give mercy where mercy isn't due, where mercy isn't deserved. I consider myself a fairly spiritual guy. I read the Bible on occasion. I pray occasionally. I've been going to church every Sunday my entire life. So when it comes time to check all the right boxes of what it means to be a spiritual person, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. But lately, lately, what's really been um, manifesting in my life or what's really been coming to the surface is my proclivity to calling people really bad names at, at inopportune times. 
When somebody does something to me that they shouldn't do, my instant response is not what we just read in Luke chapter 6. As soon as that happens, I know I've got an area that I'm supposed to be growing in. There's an area that I'm supposed to be following Jesus in that I have not quite walked down yet. And it's because my idea of mercy is not the same idea as the idea expressed in the scripture. My understanding of mercy is not equal to what Jesus is talking about here. And so if I actually want to be a part of this kingdom, be a part of this new way of being human, be a part of this thing that Jesus is talking about, there has to be an adjustment on my part. There has to be a new way of thinking about the world that I'm inhabiting. So I like to define God's mercy. I like to call it holy mercy. And it's like this. God's holy mercy looks like this. Indiscriminate grace and hospitality. Radical forgiveness. Enemy love. And completely refraining from judging others. Man, I am so good at judging others. I am so good at that. Anybody else with me on that? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like we, are, we are swimming in this water where we have all learned to assess a person in under 20 seconds when they first walk through the door. We all have that working on us to one degree or another. We go everywhere and we just begin, we, we begin assessing people according to our human judgment. And when we're doing that, we're actually talking ourselves out of the kingdom way. So indiscriminate grace and hospitality, it's this. No matter who or where a person is in their life, we welcome them with uncompromising love. Radical forgiveness looks like this. No matter what a person has done, we forgive them. Enemy love is this. No matter who has deemed themselves our enemy, we refuse to see that person as our enemy. Completely refraining from judgment of others. That, that's like, it's almost obvious, but here's, here's the deal. We do not ever need to assess whether someone is worthy enough of kindness, mercy, grace, acceptance, and love. We see all people as worthy of God's never failing radical mercy and love. So here's the thing though. All that, all that I just said, it's like, it's like pie in the sky kind of talk, right? It's like, it's like, yeah, Andy, that's great, but it's not practical. You know, like, honestly, I think about Jesus like that all the time. Jesus, what you're saying is fantastic, but it doesn't work. It, it truly does not work because the rules of the world are one way. And here you come talking about these other kind of rules. Well, every time I try to apply these rules, bad stuff happens to me. It's like, it's like 
We actually believe that if we showed radical forgiveness, radical mercy, radical love to our enemies, that our expectation is like the heavens open and everything changes in an instant. But but what happened to Jesus, man? Every time he went around forgiving people, people got mad at him. I mean, there were there were guys that that were laying sick in bed and he just said, hey, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. People got mad at him. So it's very hard to imagine this ever becoming a reality. It's impractical. It's improbable. It's inconvenient. It's inefficient. The kingdom of God is very inefficient. You have to know that. It's very inefficient. If you start applying the kingdom ways to your life, it will... It's not productive. It's not fast. It's, it's a slow burn, man. It's a lifelong of you walking this thing out. And it's you getting little gains, not massive gains. It's you doing this stuff and nobody gets to see it. We all prefer the big, loud, radical, revival-style thing. But man, there's this part that Jesus is always trying to get to us that is small, it's hidden, and it's costly. So mostly, I don't take Jesus seriously when he talks like this. In my mind, I tell myself, that's just Jesus being poetic and deep. Truly, I can barely love the people that I love. How am I supposed to love people that are on my enemies? <laughs> Amen, fam. <laughs> How am I supposed to be merciful to people who cut me off in traffic? To people of different political persuasions? To people who don't look like me? People who don't talk like me? Who, people who don't think like me? Who don't have their lives together like me? See, here's a basic premise that I'm walking around with most of the time. I'm doing pretty good. Like, honestly, like I'm assessing y'all, but I'm assessing me too. And like, I'm, I'm walking around thinking I'm doing good stuff for the most part. And what that thought keeps me from is it keeps me from drinking in God's mercy in my own life more and more. It's not that I have to walk around feeling like the scum of the earth. But man, there's just something about when you start to understand the mercy that the Lord has given to the entire world and, and, and to me as an individual, it just opens your heart up a lot more. And then when you really get honest with yourself, you become like that woman in the New Testament who broke open the anointing jar and poured it on top of Jesus's head. And people are getting mad at her for doing that. And Jesus is saying something like, well, you know, the thing is, man, this lady has been forgiven so much. She just loves so much. And when I'm not honest about the reality of my own life, I can't receive the full breadth of that forgiveness in my own life. And it makes me a meager lover. I only slightly participate in giving away that love and mercy to other people. So here's the thing. There's a practical side to this. First of all, we should start by acknowledging that mercy is God's heart. 
That's where you start. You, you, you agree with that. You agree that God did not come to bring wrath to the world. He came to bring forgiveness, radical forgiveness and radical mercy to a world that was totally depraved and dark. So we start there. He has made a radical commitment to loving people who are nothing like him. So God's heart of love for people does not assume. Now, now get this. Bear with me for a second. God's heart of love does not assume that people will change just because he loves them. I'll let that sit in for a second. Because it is, isn't that how we think? This is how we're, we're, we're going. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. This is my strategy. Love's a powerful strategy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over here to these unlovable people who don't deserve my love. And I'm going to love them. And great things are going to happen. I'm going to see change right away. But God didn't begin with that assessment. He didn't begin with that assumption. He just pushed into the love because love is not ever worried about reciprocation. Love just loves. Love just gives. Love just forgives. Love just sows mercy. Oh, man. Help me out here. If you feel it, help it. Love assumes the risk that it will not be reciprocated. God loves radically, and he knows how much he has to lose when he does that. But he still gives himself radically. He is radically merciful especially to people who do not deserve mercy. Jesus said it like this in John 12, 47. This is a scripture that should blow your mind, okay? John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I do not judge that person. Let me, if anyone hears my words and does not do them, I do not judge that person. I've, I've preached... For years, thinking the opposite of that is true. I'm here giving people words. If they don't do what I'm saying, I judge them. You know what I'm talking about? You do it. You might not be preaching, but you're like giving somebody great advice. And they go, they walk out the door and they do the exact opposite of what the great advice you just told them to do. What do you do? Judge. (laughs) It's like, that's who we are, man. That's the world that we're addicted to. That's the world that Jesus is trying to extract us out of and bring him into his glorious, reckless, merciful kingdom. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. How did Jesus come to save the world? He came forgiving and giving mercy. How did Jesus come to save the world? He came forgiving and giving mercy. How did Jesus come to save the world? He came forgiving and giving mercy. Did Jesus wait till after he died on the cross to forgive and give mercy? Not according to the text. Over and over and over, Jesus is walking around everywhere. Your your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. Woman caught in adultery. Oh, all these people are condemning you? I don't condemn you. I mean, that was blasphemy to those people. They were addicted to the truth and consequence model. You do this, you die. 
And here comes this guy claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be God, claiming to be God, had not died on the cross. Nobody knew the cross was coming yet. He said, I forgive you. I forgive you now. The cross hasn't happened yet. The world is forgiven. We were totally confused about who God was. And Jesus showed up, God incarnate, walking around the planet saying, I forgive you in all of your mess. I forgive you in all of your sin. Everything that you've done, I already know that you've done it, but I forgive you. You can't keep anything from me. I'm here to tell you that you're not under my wrath. You're under my mercy. And the religious powers just hated that because all of their power was connected to keeping people in this bondage of going back to church over and over and over again to hear how bad they were and all of these sacrifices they must pay the merchants in the temple for so that they could, for at least a week, appease this God of wrath who was waiting for some blood in order to forgive their sins. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I forgive you, no blood is shed yet. Jesus is the merciful one who went about forgiving people who were caught in their sin and according to the law should have died for it. And it is very important to remember that when Jesus was going around telling people their sins were forgiven, it was before the cross. You can fight me on that. I'm just reading from the Bible. In fact, his acts of constant forgiveness and mercy were what led the religious leaders to crucify him. They could not imagine a world where people could just freely be forgiven. It was blasphemy to them. They could not imagine a world where those who had been deemed outcasts and sinners were shown radical mercy and indiscriminate grace and hospitality. But God loves at the expense of himself. God in Christ was killed because he walked around announcing that the kingdom of God had come near and that it was a kingdom of mercy and forgiveness. And everyone who wanted to come to the table was welcome. And this is all very hard for us to imagine. Even now I can, I can hear the gears turning in this room. This, this world of radical forgiveness and mercy, it's hard for us to imagine. Our imagination cannot handle a God who is merciful to someone before they are lovable. We can maybe get on board with mercy in the afterlife. But we are not in agreement with mercy now toward people who are not yet transformed by God's love. We must learn to show mercy, but showing mercy will cost us ourselves. So reading today's text, I want us to imagine that this isn't some far off event in an ancient text that we already understand. Let's imagine that we are taking part in the crucifixion of God. 
We have to be careful or we might keep the story at a distance without implicating ourselves in the death of God. Because truly, if anyone needs mercy, it's you and me. You can't read the story at a distance, folks. Let's do this together. I'm going to start at Mark 14. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. So even when... The Pharisees accused Jesus of many things. He stood in silence. He did not defend himself. He did not bring counter accusation. He did not try to prove his accusers wrong. He did not try to show them the error of their ways. He did what a forgiving, merciful God does. He took on their accusations. So Jesus is confronted with the religious authorities' accusations and he stands silent before them. This is God's mercy. Jesus standing silent in the middle of the Sanhedrin and all of these highly righteous, angry religious people are hurling insults and lies at him. And he is literally standing there in silence not rebutting anything that they're saying to him, not rebutting any of the shame or scorn that they're putting on him. And he stands there in silence. And that silence is the mercy of God being extended to those people. That is God showing mercy to some of the most unlovable people to ever walk the planet. Fast forward to chapter 15. Starting in verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate was that Pilate marveled. So here we see Jesus confronted by the political authorities, refusal to stand up for the innocent. And Jesus takes Pilate's scourging and Jesus is beaten And a guilty man, Barabbas, is set free. This is how God acts. This is how God shows mercy. He stands. First, he was in the religious spot. Now he's in the middle of the political spectrum 
with a corrupt politician, a man without conviction or backbone, doing the wrong thing to God himself. And God stands there silent and takes the beating that Pilate gives him. And that is the mercy of God manifested to that political realm right there. You want to know how to overthrow any political realm? Look at the way Jesus did it. You want to know how to throw any kind of religious realm? Look at the way Jesus did it. You know why nobody's doing this? Because it's a losing proposition. You know why we don't do this? Because it costs you everything. It costs you not winning at the game of life. It's the narrow path. Jesus isn't just dying on the cross so that the universe could be made whole. He's showing us what it looks like to be a merciful God. And he's showing us what it will look like when people come into his kingdom and follow his way. It's amazing how often in this narrative that Jesus is just silent Man, if we take nothing else from this this morning, how often could we just apply silence to ourselves and win at the mercy game? I saw a person on Twitter recently publicly shaming pastors who were trying to shepherd their, their churches through the most volatile political climate that we've seen in years shaming them and all I could think of myself is like there has to be a better way than responding to somebody's shame God is not trying to motivate me by shame ever he's not trying to motivate you by shame ever if you've been shaming people to control their behavior behavior you need to repent Because that's not the way of the kingdom. You know why people manipulate through shame? It's because they want to stay in control. Do you know what people who look like who are following the spirit? They're out of control. Meaning they're not in control. They recognize that they are not in control. Jesus said this on the rooftop to Nicodemus. He said, hey, hey, brother. You're a teacher of Israel. How do you not know what I'm talking to you about? Somebody who's following the Jesus way, they're like the wind. Nobody knows where it's coming from, and we heck as sure don't know where it's going. You feel like the world's a little precarious and you don't know your place in it? Welcome to the kingdom. You feel like you're losing control? You feel like your side of the political party's not winning? Welcome to the kingdom. You feel like you're losing power. You feel like you're losing influence. You feel like you say important things and nobody's listening. Welcome to the Jesus way. You feel like the powers that be want to shout you down, that people want to shame you and yell at you and tell you you're crazy for walking the way that you do. Welcome to the Jesus way. You know why nobody talks about this way? It's because it's very inconvenient. If you tell people that following Jesus is costly, they're not going to do it. It's too painful. I don't want to do it. It's terrible. 
Give up your life for a God that you can't see? What's that about? That's the ultimate risk. That is the ultimate risk that you're going to make in this life. But man, I don't know, man, but I just feel something down in my belly. I got something in my bones. I got this fire on the inside that I cannot deny as much as I have tried to deny it. Jesus will not leave me alone. And there's a work of the spirit that's happening, church. There's a work of the spirit that's moving in your midst. And you, you think sometimes that God's not working. Well, he is. And you will go through times where things don't make sense. And the seasons are very hard. And, you know, I, I don't have an answer for those things. Only God can answer for that stuff. But I do know this. Jesus was explicit on what our lives should look like. Our lives should look merciful. We should be practicing extravagant, radical hospitality and grace toward all people. Listen, I can't speak for the whole church, but at least for me, if you love gay people, I'm good with you. If you love Hindu people, I'm good with you. If you love people that vote Republican, I'm good with you. If you vote, if you love people that vote Democrat, I'm good with you. I mean, you might even vote for Bernie Sanders. I'm good with you. It's like, we don't get to call people to the table of God and just bring the Republicans in. We don't get to call people to the, to the table of God and just call straight people in. We don't get to call people to the table of God and, and I don't know, filter the process. Are you with me still? Okay, so we got Jesus sowing mercy into the religious realm. We got Jesus sowing mercy into the political realm. Jump on over to Mark 15. Uh, see, we already read 16 through 20. I want to get to that part. Yeah, let's just do this again. 16. Man, it doesn't hurt to read a scripture twice. Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison and they clothed Jesus with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with the reed and they spat on him and they and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. That's a sarcastic worship. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So here we see Jesus confronting military power. The whole garrison is beating him and mocking him. And rather than bring judgment and wrath on this evil system, rather than unleashing the power of a mighty angel army on these Roman soldiers, God in Jesus stands silent, giving them mercy, and they don't even know it. They don't even know they're receiving the mercy of God as they're beating God's head in with a staff. Man, think about that for a second. If you ever have any uh, confusion about what God is like, if you ever want to know how truly gracious he is, here is the God of the universe standing 
in front of this great military power, getting his brains bashed in. But you know, with, with just a snap, he could call down an angel army and destroy all those people. And he's sitting there dying, taking the beating rather than destroy those who have called themselves his enemy. It's mind blowing. You could think about this for the rest of your life and not come to the end of its glory. Jesus confronted with military power. He's given them mercy. And that's the thing, isn't it? Not the Pharisees, not Pilate, not the Roman soldiers. None of them knew that they were recipients of God's radical forgiveness and mercy in that moment. And this is the love of God poured out on all three of these power systems. Mercy. Jesus is doing what a merciful God does. He saves them by choosing to die rather than defend himself and destroy them, which is what they deserved. This is still who Jesus is today. Mercy looks like being silent before your accusers. Mercy looks like being radically hospitable to people who don't vote like you, who don't look like you, who don't believe like you. And the really hard part is this. This is what following Jesus is going to look like for you and me. The practice of radical mercy is going to hurt and it's going to cost us. It's going to mean being misunderstood. It's going to mean losing in small ways and probably in some big ways. That's why the way of following Jesus is called the narrow path because it's so expensive. It really is expensive. Man, this, this just kills me. These soldiers, they struck God on the head. Can you imagine striking God on the head? Think about that. They spit on him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever put yourself in that story? Can you imagine spitting on God? It just sounds crazy. Just having those words come out of your mouth. It's like, that's, that's the ultimate dishonor to, to spit upon your creator. They mocked him, sarcastically worshiping him. I mean, think about that. Think about mocking God for an extended period of time. When I read all this, all I can think is, God, you are so totally unreasonable. When I read this narrative, that's all I can think. The gospel is a scandal because God is unreasonable. Because what should happen is God in his justice should have destroyed all of those people right then and there. But that's not who he is. He didn't destroy them because he's not a God of wrath. He's not a God of wrath. He's a God of mercy. And he came once and for all showing us that in Jesus. In fact, that's what I want to do. I want justice. Man, when I see bad things happening to good people, I just want to go on the rampage, man. I want to go on the rampage. I want justice. I love cowboy movies because justice is usually served by the good guy. 
You know, we have this like American obsession with everything being set right with guns. And our art is telling us that story all the time, man. It's so satisfying, right? Man, I, I love it when the bad guy gets killed. I love it. Just being honest with you, you know? I, I mean, truly. That's why I watch those kinds of movies. But, man, that's not what Jesus is feeding on. And that's not what he's feeding us. And that's not what he's calling us to. And the reason why those cowboy movies or that sense of justice makes so much sense to us is because that's what we've been setting our imaginations upon. And Jesus is calling us to set our imaginations on a different way. His way, this narrow pathway of sowing radical mercy. Jesus says it over and over. I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. This is probably the greatest glad tidings mankind has ever heard. God declares his unconditional mercy and forgiveness over us. If you really get a hold of that, it will change you. But that change is not just for you. It's for you to give away to other people. Amen. All right, guys, let's stand up together. I apologize for preaching too long. I feel like, uh, man, sometimes we just need to respond. And I don't want anybody to run to the altar. You don't have to run to the altar. But just let, let's just do this. If, if you can relate with me and, and you feel a proclivity towards anger and wrath more than you do towards showing mercy and forgiveness, just raise your hand. <laughs> it's party in here. We're all, <laughs> this proves we are all in this together. All right. So let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Amen. All right. Holy Spirit. Your word is always challenging us. Your scripture is challenging. And we know we can't do this thing that you're talking about, this thing that you've given us. God, we can't walk in it automatically. We understand that it's a partnership with you. So here's our prayer today. First of all, we repent. We repent for sowing wrath into the world. We repent for sowing anger into the world. We repent for sowing our vengeance, our sense of vengeance and hostility in the world. We want to be a witness of your power. We want to be a witness of your goodness, Lord. And we know your witness is inside of us, Father. So we're asking you today to make us sowers of your mercy, sowers of your forgiveness, of your radical forgiveness everywhere we go. Lord, into our communities, we ask you to be, you ask, we ask you to help us to be carriers of this. And Lord, I pray for each family represented, each single person, each married person, each child, each, each, each adult. Lord, I, we, I ask you for a continued moving of your Holy Spirit that leads us into the narrow path. 
And God, I pray that we do not judge ourselves too harshly as we go through this week, but that we would practice mercy on ourselves and that we would receive your mercy even now, God. We receive your mercy. Oh, God, we receive it right now. Just let your mercy wash over our minds. Just put your heart over your, your, or your hand over your heart or your forehead or something. I just feel like we just need a, we just need a fresh revelation of this. Lord, we've heard the scriptures today. Now we ask you to just go forth and do what your, only your Holy Spirit can do. Let us feel your mercy in a new and life-giving way. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you need ministry today, we've got some ministry teams. Is that right, Stephen? Okay, if you want prayer for anything, it could be physical healing. It can be dealing with stuff in your life. You just need some help. Come on up here to this side of the stage. We're going to have some folks up here with some prayer badges on. Do you guys have prayer badges? They've got prayer badges, the official prayer badge of Queen City Church. They'll lay hands on you, pray for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug and... Have a great day and a great week. Happy birthday, Matt Midtoon. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.